Welcome to The Academic Citizen, a podcast about critical issues in higher education. The podcast is sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University, based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Our podcast aims to explore, debate, and understand a wide variety of issues about university life relevant to staff and students. We look at issues in South Africa, Africa, and beyond. In each episode, we speak to a guest who has special insight or expertise in a particular subject, and we also bring in student voices linked to that theme. My name is Mahita Ikani, and I'm your host. Uh, my name is Slade. I'm studying mechanical engineering. I'm first year. My opinion on the protest is that if they want better salaries, like the workers' protest and all of that, then sure, go ahead and protest. But as long as it's not unsafe for students and it doesn't interrupt lectures. Being an engineering student, I really don't have time to be missing lectures. Our topic today is protest. Protest takes a number of forms. It ranges from civil disobedience to non-violent sit-ins, from different forms of occupation and shutdown to sometimes very creative ways of getting attention. In the current university climate, not only in South Africa but globally, we've seen increasingly original, different and sometimes quite direct forms of action from students who are demanding that their voices be heard and that things change and evolve. As such, it's really important for us as academics to think about what protest means on the university campus today. To help us think through these questions, our guest today is Dr. Prashani Naidu. She's a senior lecturer in sociology at WITS, and before she became an academic, during the 1990s, she was a student leader at both campus and national levels. Welcome to today's guest, Prashani Naidu. Today we're going to focus on the very pressing question of protest on university campuses. And to kick us off, Prashani, could you give us your insights and your experiences based on the research that you've done about the history of protest on university campuses in South Africa? Okay, thanks, Nita. Thanks for inviting me. I think if we uh, look at protest on campuses, there's a long history of it uh, in South Africa that goes right back to the 1920s with the formation of the National Union of South African Students, which was predominantly white. Um, and I think we can understand protest historically in terms of a number of things, but I think most importantly the space that students occupy in society, the fact that it is a time in a, in a person's life when uh, there's the space to critique, to think differently, to uh, problematize what one has become accustomed to. And university education itself is, by its own nature, encouraging of that kind of approach to learning. And then I think also, particularly in South Africa, as the nature of higher education changed and black students became accepted more into the system of higher education and I think also to uh, remember that the higher education system that evolved in South Africa was one that was produced in a colonial and apartheid uh, system or society and so it reflected a lot of the uh, apartheid ideology, the colonial thinking um, and that's reflected in the differences within the higher education system. So. 
the very stratification of the higher education system produced different experiences for different groups of students entering higher education. And so the very immediate experience of students from different race groups on these campuses was fashioned by those ideas of how education or, or what kind of knowledge should be produced and who should have access to what kinds of knowledge. And I think you see different kinds of protests emerging over time. Uh, those protests that emerge in relation to very immediate needs and interests of students, what students over time have referred to as the bread and butter issues. So um, paying fees, having access to accommodation, having access to learning materials and so on. But then I think also in the South African context, students politicizing that very experience. So drawing attention to the fact that that difference in terms of the experience uh, of being a student was related to a much bigger system and a society that entrenched uh, these kinds of differences. And so students were often seeing themselves in the university space as taking on issues related to broader society. Um, and I think the particular experience of the formation of the South African Students' Organization in uh, 1969 under the leadership of Steve Biko is something extremely important uh, to consider in this history because it marks a moment uh, in which students contributed to a refashioning of the broader liberation movement. So the ideas of black consciousness and the kinds of political struggles that were born from the students involved, firstly in the university context, but then uh, who made contacts with uh, scholars in communities as well as uh, other members of uh, black communities contributing towards a very different form of thinking within the broader liberation movement. So I think we see over time the protests uh, at universities or in the higher education space are not seen as just student struggles. And I remember when I came to campus, which was at the beginning of the 1990s, a very different moment, and I'm not going to have time to go through the detail of the history, but I think uh, moving from the experience of the South African Students' Organization to the 1990s, we also see a different kind of contestation of the student movement. So you you have in that move from Sasso in the 19, uh, well, late 1960s, um, followed by its banning, um, and then the uh, contestation of student struggles by other political forces. And by the 1990s, you have the ascendance of the Congress tradition, uh, the African National Congress, South African Communist Party, and the Congress of South African Trade Unions. So when I came to university in the 1990s, uh, that tradition was dominant. Also, again, this thinking that there was a link between struggles on campuses and broader struggles. And I can remember many students, or black students in particular, describing themselves as coming to campus as agents of change rather than as students. And seeing the space of the university as another terrain of struggle for the broader liberation movement. So I think it's important to consider that in looking at that history. In that moment of the 90s, we also see contestation within the broader liberation movement by students. So particular groups of 
students from uh, within the alliance formations contesting the move towards negotiations, contesting particular decisions that uh, were taken by the leadership of the African National Congress. And in that moment, then also discussion within the liberation movement and particularly the uh, Congress Alliance about the place of higher education and the role of students in transforming society. And in the 1990s, I want to argue that what we see happening is a complete change in the ways in which students are imagined within that movement and the kinds of contributions they can make. So I think what we see is a, a kind of sectorialization of struggles happening in that period where struggles start to be seen as student struggles. You see particular issues being taken up more and more in the interests of students rather than in the interests of society more generally. And you also see uh, the introduction of this discourse of transformation that students are currently problematizing. So a number of us who were involved in the student movement at that time, in the aftermath of mass protests reminiscent of today's, were drawn into policy formulation processes that uh, led to a highly technicist approach to problems that needed to be addressed in the space of higher education. And I think what we're seeing now then is a return to some of those issues that were resolved in that technicist framework. For example, I think the return to questions of institutional culture, the curriculum, were all issues that were problematized by groups of students in the 1990s, were taken up through these policy formulation processes. And I think uh, certain aspects were neglected. So for example, the curriculum discussion was not fully resolved in those processes. And I think that's now coming up again uh, in this moment. If we can stick to the historical kind of perspective for a little longer, I think you're in a really good position to give us a, a flavour of what, historically speaking, in the context of South Africa, students used to protest about. So from your own scholarship and research into the area, are there any kind of key moments in student struggle that are particularly compelling for us to kind of reflect on and remember? Like, I'm asking whether there are any particular protests at any particular moments in history that you think are, are useful to think about now. Um, and kind of linked to that in terms of your own experiences as a student activist and a student leader in the 1990s, what, what was being protested at that time? Because that was a really important decade of transition, mm -hmm. the so-called Rainbow Nation decade. You know? So what were the things that you were protesting with, along with your peers, at that time? Um, yeah, historically, I think that there, there are quite a few moments. I've mentioned Sasso, uh, but I think the influence of Sasso also contributed to the 1976 Soweto uprising. And interestingly, I've just gone back in our second year theory course that I'm teaching at the moment to a debate uh, around 1976 between two scholars, Archima Feje and Ruth First, um, writing in 1978, but reflecting back on that moment. And it's interesting to see how students today are reacting to exactly the same problems that were thrown up by that moment, particularly around questions of political consciousness, political subjectivity, what is the relationship between 
students and workers? Are students just this privileged group who act out every now and then, or are they linked to broader struggles? Do you need a single ideology to embark on a revolution? You know, those kinds of questions, which are really big questions that I think are not limited to these particular moments. I mean, everyone speaks about 1976, but I think that's something important to also reflect on in terms of, of the current context. And then I think oh, um, the 1980s, the actions of students on various campuses and the coming together, both in the United Democratic Front, which was the uh, Congress Alliance uh, formation, as well as the National Forum, which was the Black Consciousness-led bringing together of people across these different uh, kinds of sectors. Um, and there, I think, again, uh, contributing towards uh, democratic processes of uh, confronting different problems, both at, uh, well, on campuses, but also in different communities. Um, and then the 1990s, um, look, I, I'm going to tell a little story <laughs> about this. Because I, I think it's interesting the fact that the bigger story of the student movement hasn't been told. And I think it would be really interesting to find some way of having a cross-generational kind of conversation and pulling together of this history. Because I think what uh, has happened is that because a lot of the fights have happened internal to the bigger movements, we've only glimpsed at some of the fights that have been that have emanated from, from students. Okay, so in 1993, I might be getting the exact date wrong, but I think it was 1993, the national, there was, there was a formation called the, the National Education Crisis Committee, which was a broad civil society formation bringing together different groups across the country, largely dominated by Congress aligned formations, but generally trying to unite people under the banner of people's education. So uh, trying to build a broad campaign to rethink education across primary, secondary, tertiary. And a call was made by the National Educa Education Crisis Committee to occupy all white schools. Students at FITS organized in the South African Students' Congress took this call seriously and had a few meetings to discuss how we could relate to this. And while these discussions were happening, the FITS administration, it was known as the administration at that time of management, got wind of this and thought that we were going to cause havoc on campus, and thought there was, there was going to be trouble on campus, took out an interdict to try to prevent any protests from happening, and when students heard about this, then something did actually start being made. After a first march that happened, there was uh, a window broken or something of the kind, and the deputy vice-chancellor, who was acting vice-chancellor at the time, June Sinclair called police onto campus, and it was the first time that that had happened on campus. Students reacted, people were arrested, beaten, and so on, and that then just meant that protests spiraled. I'm going to cut a long story short. I mean, the demands that were also put forward in that initial march related to this broader NECC campaign 
uh, related to you know what became known as transformation issues. But at that time, they related to the nature of councils, so governance structures on campus. I think the call was made to uh, for all members of council to resign. At that time, council members were appointed by the apartheid state. So the problematization of, of council was largely on that basis. The idea was also that governance on campus needed to be spoken about. Democratization of structures of governance needed to be one of the issues taken up. So it was council, it was fees, it was worker issues, it was the usual demands that we, well, the demands that we've now come to accept as familiar. Yes. Mm. And, you know, so over the course of the next two, three years, there were just a number of protests that began with that huge list of demands and that slowly became whittled down and whittled down and eventually ended up being related to disciplinary processes and eventually resulted in the formation or students agreeing to the formation of a transformation forum. At the time, the National Student Movement was calling for the disbanding of councils and the establishment of more representative forums. So at FITS, the Forum for Further Accelerated and Comprehensive Transformation, FACT, was established. That name itself represents a compromise. So I think it took us a few months to agree to that name. Because each aspect of that process was then submitted to a process of consultation and consensus making and all of that. So over time, fact became the space through which uh, any problems related to the university were supposed to be taken up. Students, oh, oh, a whole layer of leadership were expelled at the same time. So the compromise basically was that all students who were up for discipline uh, as a result of those protests, all of those students would be let off if we agreed to this forum being established and if all leaders of the South African Students Congress who were graduating at that point would be expelled. So we basically agreed to the expulsion of a whole layer of leaders of the South African Students Congress. What happened subsequently was, and, and I think this is quite easy to imagine, um, complete demobilization of the actual movement. The Sasko branch over time became very, very small. It went from a real mass formation to claiming to be a mass formation. And... Um, that happened for a number of reasons. One, the leadership were expelled, putting the, the other members in a state of crisis. Two, a few individuals became negotiators in this forum. And the forum itself became bogged down in a number of technical discussions. So over time, the what became known as transformation, those issues that were, or those demands, became embedded in this highly technicist uh, framework. And it also became difficult for that layer of negotiators to remain connected to mass discussions. And mass discussions were also not happening anymore because people weren't interested in the numbers of people who were going to be sitting on council, the, the actual technical makeup of the different structures of governance and so on. So over time, student politics was also affected on campus. At that time, there was also the change in the political context 
outside. So the reestablishment of the African National Congress and the broader alliance, the entry into government uh, by the former liberation members, the need within the movement to actually submit to certain processes of negotiation and so on. So you also saw in that time the leadership of the ANC and the alliance playing more of a role in student politics on campus. So at the time, I mean, in 1993, or when that campaign started, one of the tactics that was turned to after police were brought onto campus was to litter campus. It became known as Operation Litter. I mean, liberal sensibilities just could not accept. Um, so we became the hooligans, the ones who wanted to destroy. Um, that was seen as violent. And many of those within the movement outside also dismissed that tactic. And so, you know, what, what became acceptable forms of protest um, changed in that moment. Maybe this is a good time to pause and ask you to give us your views or your insight, if you're willing, on this question of what is an acceptable form of protest on a university campus. And I think it's a very vexed question. It's very politicized in different ways by different actors. I mean, those of us who were observing what was happening on campuses around the country towards the end of 2015 noticed a lot of public commentary about students who were violent or not violent. And I think this is a conversation we really need to have. And I think you're kind of really well positioned to help us reflect on it in a thoughtful way. So if we accept that the university is a place in which minds are meant to be opened and transformed and progressed and in which students are in a perfect position in their life cycles and their development as individuals to take on issues, whether they're micro bread and butter issues that affect them and their well-being or whether they're bigger social, political, cultural, environmental, whatever issues, what kinds of protest should we collectively agree are acceptable, what are not? What are the different ways in which this label of violent is used to discredit protests at times and at other times perhaps is a fair way of describing what's happening? So what kinds of protest can we yeah. consider acceptable on campuses and which kinds should we stand up and say, hang on a second, let's rethink this? Look, I, I think you're right. It is a vexed question. It's a difficult question. And I think it's also important to contextualize the moment that, that I mean, the protests I was talking about, the Operation Litter. Uh, but let me start there before mm. getting to the bigger answer. Mm -hmm. Look, I think Operation Litter emerged at a particular moment, and it, it also contributed to divisions in the student movement, okay, because there were students within Sasko who didn't agree with that tactic. The argument made at the time by those who upheld it was that at that time, forces in the university were stacked against students to the extent that any other form of engagement with the existing uh, structures of authority were not allowing us to move anywhere. And that at that time, black students were minority on campus. There was also a sense from the broader alliance and mass democratic movement that significant change had to happen in terms of leadership of the institutions of higher learning in order for, for things to shift. And I think at that particular time, the management calling in police was what actually sparked that kind of, of response. So I'm 
I'm trying to give just a sense of the thinking behind that, the mobilization of that tactic. My own feeling is that, look, I, I think there are times in which it is difficult to have democratic consensus about these things. There are times when immediate forms of action are, are required and so on. But I, my position is that in a democratic space, in a community or a, a group or collective um, that imagines itself as, as working democratically, those kinds of decisions about tactics and so on need to be submitted to debate, discussion, scrutiny by that particular collective. In a space like the university, and I think what was up for question at that moment and what is still up for question now is who constitutes this university community? Who has the right to speak in it? Who has the power to actually effect change in it? And I think today we do have structures in place, we do have policies in place that are, are the result of struggle and compromise. And I think that if we look at how the Feasance for protests started last year, they started in the first place as a response from elected student representatives who were sitting in the accepted structures of governance, who felt that their voices were not being taken seriously and their contributions were not having an effect on the actual decisions that were being made. And I don't think that those student leaders even imagined themselves the number of people that they would draw together in taking on the system that, in the way that they did. And I think that the tactic that emerged in that first week of shutdown is something that's new in this context. I think, yes, it was mobilized in the past, but in a very, very different way. And I think it was also interesting to watch how it un unfolded. It was a very few students who actually began it, um, but within the space of a day, it, it really swelled. And I think that also speaks to this question of, of who the university community is, because I think that just raising that particular critique allowed a number of other voices to feel, or, or people to feel like they could come together and you know, make their voice heard in a, in, a, in a more collective manner. What then followed? Um, you know, for me, and I, I haven't settled all of these questions myself, and, I, and I, I don't think that, you know, students themselves have necessarily settled all these questions. And, you know, towards the end of last year, students within Fismas 4 were fracturing over the adoption of far more violent tactic by some members. And there was a moment where the priority was to actually have this debate, have this discussion about tactics and you know what was acceptable or not. And it was interesting in the one discussion that I was part of, um, the emphasis on the question of accountability and that the resistance to uh, any small group or any little uh, faction undertaking actions on the part of the bigger collective. And for me, that's what's, although it's been emphasized at different times, it's also been missing. Uh, any kind of democratic space through which people can actually have a conversation and debate about what tactics, uh, what does it mean to be violent. And I think this is a really important discussion to have, because I think it's one thing to say that 
uh, there's institutional violence. But it's another to say that in order to take it on, we allow ourselves to act against each other in ways that are not um, conducive to the bigger project. And I think this is also a conversation that's surfaced in uh, Fismas 4. Interestingly, some students drawing from other movements, particularly the Occupy experience of the idea of a prefigurative politics, that we have to be what we want to become. We can't act in ways that are contradictory uh, to what, what, what we become. So if we uphold violence as a tactic, um, I think it's important for us to consider what the outcomes of that are for ourselves. What does it mean for who we are, how we act in relation to each other, and what does it mean for the space of the movement itself? So I don't discard violence as a tactic, but I think for me, the bigger question is, what are the results? What are the effects? I think this question of violence as a tactic is one that's really, that divided academic staff in particular, yes. those who were observing the movement and who were perhaps, you know, quite sympathetic yes. to the issues and who really agreed that every academically deserving student should be at a university regardless of financial obstacles. But I think the perceptions that were made about whether certain kinds of tactics or protest actions were violent was a, a point that really kind of divided academic staff mm -hmm. because most of them fear for their safety or for yes. their, they worry about their kids' safety. They worry about their comfort being disrupted if they can't just drive off campus mm -hmm. as they normally do. And I wonder if you have any, well, any reflections on the ways in which protest was fairly or unfairly characterized as violence, firstly. And secondly, what advice would you give? Because you're in quite a unique position of having, well, all of us were students at one point, but you were a particular kind of student who was active and mobilized in quite a particular way and who is now an academic member of staff. So the second kind of part of my question would be how, what advice would you give to colleagues, academic staff who perhaps don't have the direct insight that you do into, you know, the history of student protest and the particular configuration of it now, how would you advise them to consider themselves in relation to the protest that they may see and that they may be a little bit freaked out by, you know, perhaps rightly or wrongly mm -hmm. so? Because I don't think we've seen the end of student protests. No, no, no. So, you know, I think some academic colleagues might need a bit of help in working out where do I fit in to this picture, right? Okay, so let me start with the story again, because I, I, I think you know, last year I was also in a unique position in relation to the students, uh, the protests, because I was on sabbatical, and I could actually give up a lot of my time to be there. Um, I didn't have the usual limitations. And because I wasn't teaching, it also meant that I didn't actually know a lot of the students. Usually I teach big second year classes, so I, I know a lot of the students. Um, and in that moment uh, where Professor Habib, Professor Crouch and other council members uh, were in uh, Solomon House and uh, students weren't or were, were demanding their attention, it, no one had anticipated that. And there were very few of us academic staff around um, and there were very few of us academic staff who could be identified as 
you know, having some kind of relationship with some of the students who were involved in the protests. And there was a moment, I mean, we, we talk about violence and we talk about the violence that happened early this year. But for me, the biggest threat was that moment because it was completely unplanned. There were, I mean, I think the students didn't even know too many of the other. It wasn't like an organized group that was coming there. It was an SRC initiative that completely spiraled. And there was a moment also where the leadership didn't know exactly what to do. And over the course of that night, there were a number of moments where there was the possibility of violence. And I mean, Solomon House was packed <laughs> to the ceiling. A, a colleague and I were, well, we, I think it was just instinct to rush to the front. And for most of the night, we stood between the council members and masses of students. And yes, there were moments when students were really, really angry, but there was never a moment where I felt, and I'm tiny, I felt like I was going to be rushed or every time I put up my hands or every time I said, well, think about this, or, you know, we can't act this way. There was the openness to actually engage. Um, and I think for colleagues who fear the kind of action on the part of students that is threatening to them, that's an important moment to reflect on because it wasn't the case that things got out of hand. I left for about 15 minutes and came back and the mood had completely changed because private security had come in and pepper sprayed a campus security person. And that was the only moment in the night that I felt like we could have lost control completely. Um, and I think that also speaks to this idea of us seeing ourselves as a particular community and having the space to engage with each other differently. That then raises this question of engagement and forms of engagement, because I think we have to take responsibility at the level of the university, but I think also nationally we're seeing this, we've seen it across the country last year with the responses to protests. The complete breakdown of engagement at the point where students become or go slightly beyond what's seen to be acceptable forms of protest. So even the University of Johannesburg arrests, which was really a small group of students and workers lining up on the side of a road, uh, not really disrupting traffic, but making their presence felt uh, in a way that was perhaps making people feel a bit uncomfortable. Um, but I think that's the nature of protests. It's the aim of protest is to draw attention to a particular issue in a way that makes people sit up and uh, take notice, that makes people uncomfortable. And I think that's what students were saying, particularly around the idea of the, the shutdown, that things could not go on as usual because the... Um, accepted structures through which decisions were being taken had broken down. Uh, for me, that's how I would approach this question of, of protest in the democratic context. So where we have institutions through which problems can be taken up, I think those should be the first points 
that we turn to in order to challenge, in order to question. But I think if those break down, if those fail, and if there is a collective feeling, and I think here we did see a mass of students, it wasn't a small group of students coming out to demand that the institution take seriously a question that is already on its agenda and that is seen to be failing to be addressed through the existing structures, then that for me is an acceptable mm. I really think it's important what you said about the link between accountability and choice of tactics yeah. and some kind of sense there is a collective consensus behind the tactics and how they're implemented and that we, we need to kind of almost judge them on a case-by-case -case basis, yes. perhaps rather yes. than kind of homogenizing yes. an entire very complex and quite fractured at the moment yes. group of people. I'm not sure it can be called a movement right in this yeah. moment. But that to me seems important in kind of thinking through what kinds of protests mm -hmm. are relevant or important or necessary or problematic yeah. in particular contexts at particular times. Yes. So maybe back to the second part of the question, what would you advise, you know, a lot of academic staff chose to stay away from campuses when protests were happening. Some of them still feel nervous about it, might not know how they fit in, what to do. What would you advise them in terms of not their thinking or their attitudes, but just their, how, how, how would you advise them to place themselves? What would you advise them to reflect on or try and keep in mind? Look, these are difficult questions, really difficult questions, but I think, you know, I, th I think they also speak to how we see our students and how we imagine ourselves as teachers. Um, and I think there's no way of escaping the context that we live in. And the classroom is a microcosm of society. There's no escaping that. Even if we remove ourselves from the protests, we're going to constantly, constantly confront the issues that they raise in our classrooms. So for me, I think the challenge for us is to start imagining ourselves differently. And I include myself in that. I think it's all of us who've been produced by this very system that we're trying to change. I think Asawa is a great space to start. We need to be finding spaces through which we can come together and have these conversations as academics. Um, you know, in terms of the immediate problems that, that we're facing in the classroom. But I think also to start finding ways, and this is the more difficult challenge, finding ways of bridging those divisions between academics and students, um, or the ways in which we imagine this community we're part of. We see ourselves as these separate bodies, these you know, stakeholders, or we come together when there's a necessity uh, rather than finding ways of shaping this community that we imagine together and i know that sounds very idealistic and romantic but i think we have to start somewhere and that means confronting the hard questions together because mm. i mean it, for me the saddest moment last year was you know when police just started closing down on everything and the state started closing down on students because I, at that moment I thought we've just admitted that we we don't have a solution we cannot have this conversation because um, at that point when you have to be violent in order to stop those who are questioning you I think you've you've lost it yeah I think you're you're right I think we need to be working at finding 
ways to be more empathetic with our students and to recognize that our own careers, our own jobs, our own mm -hmm. privileges as academics are entirely constituted on the fact that we have students yes. to teach yes. and that we learn from them as much as they learn from us. Yes. And that, like you said, we're part of a community where we need to start seeing one another as kind of co-constitutive yes. rather than these separate little silos and bubbles. Yes. But I think that's a really slow process. So... I mean, even just thinking differently about protest or kind of questioning a mainstream media representation yes. of a student protest is, I think, a step in the yes. right direction. You know, one uh, other moment last year which I saw as potentially producing something different was around this idea of the assembly and the university assembly. Because students were asking us to go back to an existing idea or formation, but to think about how we come into it in a very different way. And they were asking us to, I think, actually talk about decision making in a very different way. So, you know, opening up the space of the assembly to some of these discussions might allow for, you know, this different generation of ideas. So, We've seen the issue of fees being put on that agenda. We've seen the issue of insourcing. Uh, but perhaps other issues that were lost in that kind of technicist approach can be resurrected, and uh, we can find other ways of talking about these things. I'm pretty sure that um, students will make us find other ways <laughs> of thinking about these things. And just one thing that came to mind is that we're seeing quite a lot of student protests internationally. We're seeing movements in India, we're seeing movements in different countries in Africa, even in the UK right now, there's a kind of rent boycott. Mm -hmm. Do you think there are any connections between these different kind of upsurgences of student activism and protest? Yeah, look, look, I think there's a lot of work and thinking work to be done around this, but I think, yes, I mean, uh, it speaks to the nature of, or the state of higher education mm -hmm. globally. I think we're all feeling the pinch. <laughs> I mean, that's got to do with the global economy. It's got to do with the you know, aftermath of some of the neoliberal restructuring that happened. And I think the introduction of neoliberal policies in the higher education space has also meant that there's a certain commonality to the experience, experiences of students, of academics, and so on, you know, across the world. And just the nature of, or, or the nature of knowledge production we're going to see increasingly similar kinds of protests. And I think already we're seeing the initial or some initial attempts to speak across these. And who knows, maybe there will be broader linkages between these experiences. It's quite an optimistic note mm. to end on, which I think is a good place to end. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks. The discussion today has revealed not only the history to protest on South African campuses, but it's also made us reflect on some really big questions about what change means if certain members of the university's communities don't feel heard. Although some might argue that violence is never an appropriate solution, a position that I feel comfortable with, others might argue that the accumulation of frustrations that students may experience at not being heard will actually require ever bolder forms of direct action and protest. What do you think? What are your views on protest on campuses? What is acceptable and what is not? Your feedback is welcome 
at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com. Uh, my name is Tuman Teven. Uh, I'm studying mechanical engineering. I'm a first year student. Uh, what I think about protesting, like, yeah. actually in South Africa, that's how things work. I mean, if you just complain, no one will, no one will care. But if you do something, uh, the government even recognizes, okay, this is happening. So that's the only way to get a response. But I'm not saying that it's a good thing because it does affect us in a different ways. Because like we don't even sometimes the no, there are no classes and time, you know. So the problem with protesting is that it affects students. But sometimes it's, I think it is helpful in South Africa because you cannot, even if you can get to offices, like you say, guys, we need help. They won't even do anything unless you, you did the protesting. I think it's the only way in South Africa. The Academic Citizen is a podcast sponsored by ASAWU, the Academic Staff Association of Wits University. ASAWU is the union representing the interests of academic staff at Wits. For more information, visit www.asawu.org.za. The Academic Citizen aims to be a platform for a diversity of views and opinions. We welcome your feedback, comments, and suggestions for future guests and shows. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or leave a comment at www.theacademiccitizen.org. Today's show was presented by Mehita Ikani. Research scheduling, editing, and production was done by Balungi Lembenyane. Thanks to Dr. Prashani Naidu, Slade, and Tivan for their time as well as Pervez Khan for his input and David Hornsby for his moral support. Jürgen Mikkel created our jingles. Additional sound effects were recorded during a protest at Fitz University in 2016.